It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The Slate Political Gap Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com political and using the promo code POLITICAL. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 5th, 2016, the Coin Toss edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C. with John Dickerson. Hello, John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Uh, uh, hello, David. I'm so happy to physically be here with you. I know. It's been a long time since we've physically been together. Mm-hmm. I want to hold hands. Let's, <laughs> let's not. That's so sweet. Emily Bazelon. There she is. In, are you in New Haven, Emily, or somewhere else? I am in New Haven. I'm sorry that I'm not there with you guys. I'm glad you're reunited, though. New York Times Magazine. Did you see that there was email chatter? We may have a live show coming up together. So we'll, I we did may see all that. be together. That, that will be nice. Yeah. On this week's GabFest. The presidential race stops being polite and starts getting real. We'll catch up on the GOP post-Iowa in our first segment. Then in our second segment, the Democratic race post-Iowa. Then I will talk to Adam McKay, the director of The Big Short, about money, finance, regulation, Washington. What, if anything, we learned from the financial crisis. Then we will have cocktail chatter, of course. And in Slate Plus, We'll talk about the way Yahoo fires people. Does Yahoo fire people in a discriminatory way? Are corporations, by using performance reviews, coming up with canny ways to actually discriminate? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash Plus. Before we get started on today's show, we want to let you know about another podcast on the Panoply Network, Mom and Dad are Fighting. They have a live show coming up this month. Dan and Allison will be in New York on February 18th. They're doing a live podcast from the Bell House in Brooklyn. You should check it out. They have a great show. Dan and Allison are both real show people, showmen, showman, and showwoman. And They're going to be awesome. Also, I love that venue. It is a great venue, the Bell House. It is. We did, a, we did a couple of shows there. Yep. They were really fun. Last week, John Dickerson promised, we both promised, Emily may even promised, there would be an end to ignorance. We had the first vote on Monday in Iowa. We will have the second vote this coming Tuesday in New Hampshire. That means there's true information. Mm. There's actual information that has now been injected into the corpse of the – or the, the – not corpse, I guess because it's alive. Body. Into the body politic. <laughs> Let's start, start with the Republicans. Ted Cruz won the Iowa caucus. 
Donald Trump a second, which was a disappointment, I think, to a lot of his supporters and to certainly to him. And Marco Rubio is uh, touting his third place victory as though he just defeated Nazi Germany. So, John, we talked when we when we last met, Trump had boycotted the final debate in Iowa. It was, the question was, was that a canny play? Was that a not canny play? Did that Was that, in fact, a, a an important fact in his loss, or was that uh, not really part of it? I don't think it was a big important fact. I think I mean, uh, if it were to have been an important fact, it would have had to have been those late deciding voters who said, boy, I was on the cusp of Trump, and this is childish or impetuous or whatever, and I'm not going to go with him. One of the interesting things in the entrance polls in Iowa is when you ask people when they made up their mind about Trump, he picked up his voters a month before the vote or earlier. And what that suggests is that this ceiling we've talked about with him, that would suggest it's real, that he that the people who like him, like him, they get him. He gets those voters. They stick with him no matter what he does. But it's those others that are hard to get. And the reason I mention that is it's for things perhaps like missing the debate that makes it hard for those people to come on board with him. Although, if you don't like Donald Trump, there are certainly plenty of other reasons not to like him. Emily, what what explains Cruz's victory? I mean, there's much made about his data mining, that it was a very scientific and analytical and, and closely targeted campaign. Is it your sense that that was the key? Or is that is there some heartfelt appeal that Cruz makes to people? I mean, his ground game was excellent. He successfully got evangelicals to the polls in greater numbers than before. And that was enough, given how split up the vote was among other candidates, you know, mostly Trump and Rubio. Wait, can I interrupt for one second? I have a ground game question, which I think. So Iowa, you have a ton of time to prepare in Iowa. Cruz spent a ton of time, money, effort. He clearly got ground game benefit from that analysis. Now that the the kind of rhythm is so much faster and the one follows the other, follows the other, follows the other, and you don't have time to set up organizations. Do those ground game advantages, do they still accrue to you because you just do it – you still do it better than everyone else? Crucial question. The crucial question. And this is why campaigns are so exciting. You can replicate part of it. But because a caucus is more – tends to be more ideological than a primary, and that's true in both parties, it's a little bit harder to go to a caucus. It's – there's that extra effort that it takes – makes the, the group of available voters smaller. It tends to make them more activist. And those are the Cruz voters. It, it benefits organization because you can go find those activists because they tend to participate and therefore you can get their name and go out, reach out and look for them. Primaries, you know, it's a much bigger group. And so the, the ground game matters, but not the, as much as it would have in Iowa. And also to your point, you tend to put all your resources in the first one. Now, one of the things that Ted Cruz has going for him that Huckabee and Santorum, to whom he is sometimes incorrectly compared because they won 08 and 12 in Iowa, is he has two things they didn't have, $20 million on hand, which is more than I think anybody else other than Trump, uh, an incredible organization in – well, I should say incredible. I mean he has an organization relative to those two previous winners in Iowa. And the organization is in South Carolina and some of the other states, but it's not – the kind of advantage that you would have in Iowa uh, for for Cruz. Is, um, Emily, is Trump in trouble? I think Trump's in trouble. I actually think maybe he's not going to win a single primary. 
my husband has been saying that for months, so I should give him credit for that um, prediction, and he can take the blame if it turns out to be wrong. But there are a lot of people in New Hampshire who seem like they haven't really made up their mind, their support is soft, and it just seems to me that Rubio has momentum, Cruz has his greater organization and just seems more on it. And I have to say, like, the last day and a half of Trump complaining that, you know, Cruz cheated in some way, that the vote should be nullified, it just seems like sore loser. What did he, what are his, seem... What's the substance of that complaint? I kind of tuned it out. Well, there was a, a report that Ben Carson was going to Florida, John, from yeah, that he was bailing. instead of going to New Hampshire. Yeah, that he was going home, and the CNN report made it sound like he was going home and not going to New Hampshire or South Carolina, as if uh, this is usually the kind of thing, report you get before they bow out. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's going off the campaign trail to reassess his priorities or whatever. Um Right. And CNN kind of played it as if maybe he was about to bow out. And then Cruz's people picked it up and ran with it and said, he is bowing out. You should throw your support to us. And then they apologized for that later. So that did seem like they <laughs> After the had... vote was in. <laughs> yes. Right. They apologized <laughs> later. I should say that. Right. So it did seem like, you know, they were they were lying, essentially, oh, or at that least seems vastly to, that seems to, if that, is, that seems to me like if I... You you were practicing criminal malpractice if you're Ted Cruz's campaign manager and you don't jump on. Right. Well, there's like that. a. Se- well, that's, that's ridiculous thing, like, to say the, that that's wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, it would not be the first time that Donald Trump has said something that. Uh, I mean, I, I, there are two. Th- right. The second piece of his claim is that they sent around this piece of pressure, social pressure mail, in which they said that voters were in violation, and it was very hardball use of social pressure. This is a technique that's come into vogue, and that Sasha Eisenberg writes about in his great book, The Victory Lab, where you make people feel guilty relative to their neighbors for not participating in the electoral process. Um, the cr- right. It's like the not recycling, you know, the people not using the solar babies. power email what's, pressure What's or whatever, wrong with doing that? That seems great. The, well, I guess you only send it to your supporters. So, so in that yes, sense. You I know. Win. I also claim, feel like so what? You're trying to get them to the to the caucus. The claim is that, and this is not just made by Donald Trump, it's made by others. The claim is that, that Cruz in his social pressure mail made it look official. And the Secretary of State in Iowa said it was, it was out of bounds. But to this question, of Trump, what we will see in New Hampshire and other places is the durability of that group that decided for Trump more than a month ago and has been incredibly sticky and hasn't fallen away from him despite all the things that people thought. Let, let's go to the... All let's right. go well, to... maybe he'll still win New Hampshire. I still think he's in trouble. And I think this sore loser image is so at odds with his persona that it could rock some people. Yeah. Let, let's go to the um, the establishment lane. Jeb and Christie seem to be making sort of a last stand against Rubio. What's, what are the signs so far, John, about whether they're going to be able to hold at least enough of the mainstream conservative vote? Well, there's been one poll out since Iowa. I wouldn't pay attention to any poll in New Hampshire for another four days. And then they could actually vote since it's only next Tuesday. There's a fascinating decision that Christie and Jeb and Kasich have to make, which is There's something called murder-suicide in politics where when you attack somebody else, you drop 
they drop and somebody else gets the benefits of those votes. So the typical or the best example of this is Gephardt and Dean in 2004 in, in Iowa, Kerry Rose. So all the mainstream candidates who I've been thinking of more in terms of electability versus ideology, Cruz is making an ideological pitch. I'm the consistent conservative. Come with me. Follow the flame. The Rubio is making the electability. I can beat Hillary. And that's what all these other guys are making. So Christie, et cetera, have to make this decision about if they attack Rubio, it's very possible they tear him down and, and Cruz and Trump are elevated because the, the entire quote unquote establishment lane is just a it's a massive it's like the end of Hamlet. Everybody's dead at the end. Um, so that's one thing. Second thing for Jeb Bush, his super PAC has already been savaging Rubio. So does Jeb Bush, if he doesn't win New Hampshire and has to fold up his campaign, does he want the last person to participate in electoral politics from the third generation of the Bush family to be remembered for ruining the chances of perhaps the first person of Latino descent to get the nomination from the Republican Party and or to be remembered for ending in a scorched earth campaign this last gasp of the third generation of the Bush family? And so that's a delicate thing for him. So he's been attacking Rubio, basically saying, look, we elected a, a fancy politician who had no experience in Barack Obama, and look where it got us. And then Christie has been pretty tough on Rubio, talking about his his no exceptions abortion position, calling him the boy in the bubble uh, who doesn't take questions, uh, which is which is a totally erroneous and ridiculous claim. Um, he does take questions. I've questioned him. Lots of people questioned him. He's had tons of negative ads dropped on him. But Ruby, uh, Christie's trying to say, like, I'm the tough guy. I've been out here mixing it up. And Rubio's this encased a feat character. So it doesn't look like they're laying the, the you know, they're laying off him and we'll just see if any of these attacks really land. So Emily, what is a win for Rubio in New Hampshire? It's just beating Bush Christie Kasich. He doesn't have to beat Trump. I think that's right, but I think he has to it can't be like 7% to 6% to 6.5%. I think he has to seem like he is ahead of the pack. And do you think if Rubio comes out of New Hampshire ahead of those guys, then in, all the other establishment candidates are drop? I don't know about all of them, but at least two of them drop out. Yeah. And then maybe one other is left, either Bush or Kasich. There is a there is a sort of New Hampshire or go home feeling among those other, these sort of electability grouping. Lindsey Graham, who's campaigning for Jeb Bush in New Hampshire, said if Marco Rubio beats Bush by a big margin, then Bush is toast. I don't even think it needs to be a big margin. And Bush has to. And do you think Kasich goes home Kasich, too? And Christie. And Kasich was quoted Wednesday as saying, "If I don't win in New Hampshire, I'm not going to hang around like some minstrel begging people to come to my show." Uh, Cri- oh, okay. Christie has said nothing. Really minstrel al- is not a word. You don't want to use that word. That's not a good word. Christie said a couple of weeks ago. He said, "You know, I'm just hoping to be." to be the best governor in the polls coming out of New Hampshire, which was an attempt to build a little bit of a backdoor uh, out of is he, New Hampshire. Is he the only governor left? Well, that would be... It, no, Kasich and But Bush. best oh, governor would mean... Right. Best governor would could allow you, if Trump was first and Rubio was second, he would come in third and you could say, I'm the best governor. I think that's a pretty... That's a weak thing because the, the, <laughs> the race is between Trump Cruz... And the alternative to Trump Cruz. And the people who want that alternative are anxious for that alternative to get going. And do you think it's clear that it is a, it's either Trump or Cruz and that Trump's voters go to Cruz if Cruz? No, it's no. A lot of them might melt away. M- many of them would go to Cruz. Some would go to Rubio, I think. All right. John, you spent a bunch of time in Iowa. I love 
all John Dickerson Iowa anecdotes. Was there? Did you have any weirdness in Iowa? Is there anything you saw that was like that is such a great Iowa moment? That's so great. Well, you know what? Actually, there's a lot there. There were a lot of people. I had to stay an extra day because the, the snow and weather kept me um, from being able to get on my plane. And there was a kind of um, day after the wedding, day after the party kind of feel in Iowa. Everybody was going back to their lives. The, Caucuses were over, and there were people who just one guy like came over, stopped to thank me as a as on behalf or as a representative of the press, as a kind of there was like a farewell going on all day when uh, Tuesday, that was just very sweet and very Iowa. And now we can forget about them. For no, four more Emily, years. we're trying to build up. Didn't you hear this whole strategy? We're trying to build up the Gabfest Iowa listenership, and John was <laughs> in on that whole strategy, and now you've just undermined it. God. I refuse to panic. Our executives, the panoply God. executives are going to have you fired okay. for that. Let's hear from our first sponsor now, which is Stamps.com. You know that feeling you get when you can get things done with just the click of your mouse? There's nothing more convenient than that. And now you can get your mailing and shipping done that way without leaving your desk thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. It's incredibly convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using just your computer and printer. Then you hand your mail to the mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox, and you will never have to go to the post office again. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST for this special offer, a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GabFest. That's Stamps.com. Enter GabFest. Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders in the Iowa caucus this week the way Emily Bazelon beats me in arguments, namely not at all, (laughs) but maybe in her own mind. By a coin toss. It was astonishingly close. Hillary got a teensy, 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 teensy little win. And it was just because of coin tosses, right, Emily? No, I think that whole coin toss, Hillary running the tables on the coin toss story is not an accurate story. John, am I right about that? Uh, I don't know if you're right about it. I, As soon as I saw the conspiracy, I moved on because I just <laughs> did, didn't believe that there was anything like – you know, anyway, yeah, I just – um, I really I don't understand, though, why the Democrats don't report out vote totals. That just seems very odd to me. Well, because the system in Iowa for Democrats was never about picking a, f- a first best person. The Iowa system, as it was originally conceived, was a winnowing. So, you know, you have 72 different hats you can buy at your local haberdasher. And the salesperson at the haberdashery says, let me pick out four for you from which to make your final choice. That's what I was doing. And what I was, and the Iowa Democrats are like, if you want to say we're picking the number one, you can say that. But that's on you. We're not. That's not what we're doing. We're picking a selection of people and then they're assigned delegates. And this is only – there's a, two more steps in the process to assign the delegates. So these are just – anyway. So – they are staying true relatively, although it's been kind of warped. They're staying, trying to stay true to the original notion of the thing. And we're the ones all trying to say, this, we, you must have a winner. 
Well, yeah, they probably want both their ways. Their job is to produce a winner. I think that Godot. No, be that's not true. Their job is to help the conversation along. Oh, you don't want to. You don't want a winner produced that fast. If you, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you want a convers. You want the conversation to happen. Right, but then when the conversation is over, can't they end up with some clear number of people who voted for X versus Y, Clinton versus Sanders? I would argue in today's, like, we got to declare a winner instantaneously in this round of Twitter conversation that you want actually the opposite. You want the structure to slow things down, to force the messy wrestling with both ideas and candidates. And that's actually what's happening in the Democratic Party. It's fantastic. I mean, everybody talks about the split in the Republican Party, which is obviously real. But in the Democratic Party, what does it mean to be a progressive? What does it mean to be pragmatic? Yeah, so fine. So you talk about all this stuff, and then at the end, people say they pick one person over the other person, and we count those people. I know, but it's not that important, Emily. This is like a – it doesn't determine who gets the nomination. The fact that they tied was a very useful indicator of the split in the Democratic Party. All I was saying was that it would be useful to have some voter totals so we know what that tie really consists of. I mean, it is a night that is supposed to produce an outcome. And I am so sick of but all by, the non-outcome, not knowing It did knowing produce who an outcome. What do you mean? Only, there was an outcome. Yes, and I'm just saying you need to have that outcome nailed down by some actual counts. I'm going to drop this. Do you guys this. think the Democratic Party is headed for the same crack up between a centrist elected group of elected officials and then a progressive base to it, a partisan electorate, the, the, the crack up that has happened to the Republican Party. Is this, I mean, Sanders in some sense looks like a Bill Bradley or maybe Howard a Ted Dean. Kennedy or Howard Dean. And that those were not that meaningful ultimately to sort of the whole shape of the Democratic Party. Or does it act, is there actually now a kind of discordancy between the center establishment elected officials of the party and the more progressive liberal base of the party? Well, I think you could argue that Howard Dean was, laid the predicate. He certainly laid the predicate in tactical terms for Obama. Um, but the fact that a first-term senator with no executive experience could swamp two sitting senators – well, four sitting senators when you think about it, when you think about Dodd and Biden running in 08. Obama had progressives plus. I mean he was able to take that base, appeal to it but then also pull in others. So Dean was more than just a, kind of a pet rock of the liberals in terms of what he left for the next guy. Um the liberal base of the Democratic Party is smaller than the conservative base of the Republican Party. And but so I guess I'm asking, is that changing? Is there oh. a sense that that, is, that, that actually is that, – that, I mean, doesn't that, that depend on whether Sanders more... can crack 40 percent, which has always uh, been the ceiling for these folks? Uh, the question is, big, how big is the Sanders vote in, South, in, any other, in other states? Because Iowa and New Hampshire are, of the, uh, are the three most liberal states – of the of those that where there will be contests, the third being. Vermont. I feel like the Democratic Party is is about to shed. I feel like it's going to go through the same kind of ideological winnowing that the Republican Party has gone through because there isn't a moderate position which is effective anymore. Obama, and is that good or bad? I mean, maybe that's it's terrible. It's terrible for the country. Why? It's a, a, Why is it terrible? It's original for the sin of the because it's an abandonment of the center. Yeah, the politics needs to occupy. Politics needs to take place in the center. But in maybe a, you have to generate have. new ideas and new energy not in the center and then somehow force at a later date when somehow the um, the incentives change, then you force people back into the middle to grapple with each other. It's not like we're getting anything done in the center. I know. But what's happening is that there are these crazy ideas out on the extremes. But they're not that crazy. That- 
What's crazy? They are on the they're on the right. Well, well universal health care as a single payer is not happening. A single single payer is pretty extreme in terms of the um the the list of possible things. Well, it's extreme in the context of American politics. Yeah, it's yeah. not extreme in the sense that every other civilized nation in the world practically has some version of it. So that's not that. It's not that extreme. Well, my point is, it's in implausible, the of though. Yeah. yeah, it's no, it's yeah, it's it's unlikely. But some of um, these issues around taxes and who's paying and dealing with income inequality, those things, there's energy on both the right and the left for addressing those problems. It just is taking a different form. Yeah. Well, I don't know. The the I got in so much trouble. I did so. I did this show, you guys, on um, Tuesday after the caucus, and just did with. Uh, Jacob Weisberg and Jamel, and we were talking about Sanders. And one of the things I said, which I've just been taking a beating on email and Twitter everywhere I turn, is that I was saying that I felt like a lot of what was going on with Sanders voters is that that Sanders is the Sanders campaign is fun, and young people tend to young people want to be around something that's fun and energetic. And there's a lot of fun on the right, and Hillary is not fun and represents the kind of old ideas and something we've seen a hundred times before and that Sanders represents you know he does represent ideologically some ideas that are appealing to people but also it's just the campaign is it's fun to be involved in a campaign how much do you want to shoot that down John I don't know I think you're right I mean people love like to be a part of a movement what's interesting about political movements and going back to the point you were uh, you guys were both just talking about is that I mean Barack Obama's campaign was a was that same kind of thing, a big movement full of ideals and the notion that if Democrats kind of embraced their their hearts and 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 supported him, that that, that um, movement would swamp the sclerosis in Washington, which is a completely botched metaphor. But anyway, it would it would it would overload the system and um, create good outcomes. There's a lot of disappointment that didn't happen. There are two ways to respond to that disappointment. It's like uh, uh, what did Samuel Johnson say about second marriage is the triumph of hope over experience. You can say oh, the, the system really is screwed. We need somebody in there who's going to fight in the trenches for those small gains. Even Barack Obama now says about the presidency, it's not about writing huge chapters in history. You get a paragraph and you just want to make sure your paragraph is good. But if the presidency is about those kinds of small incremental gains and that's the structure of America – as designed more than 200 years ago, then you need somebody who knows how to just grind it out in that structure. And it's foolhardy to go to look for somebody on the left or the right who can create, by the way, because Ted Cruz's message is exactly Bernie Sanders's. His message is there will be an army of conservatives who will swamp the system, including those capitulating cartel participating Republican establishment people. It's kind of interesting the way in which people who are most disappointed with the system and its inability to get anything done are seeking solutions that would, if you followed them through to their logical conclusion, would create a kind of utopian functioning of the system that we've never really seen before. Okay. Let's hear from our next sponsor, which is Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. The mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. But Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price, and the mattresses are made in America. The mattresses have just the right sink and just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together 
to give you better nights and brighter days. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. And Casper mattresses are outstandingly priced, $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-sized. And right now, they have an awesome special. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com political and using the promo code political. Terms and conditions apply. Adam McKay is, of course, the director of The Big Short, a great movie based on a great book about the people who bet on the housing collapse and the housing crisis of 2007, 2008. Adam was in Washington last week, and he and I sat down and talked about the movie and about his experience in Washington. And here's our conversation. I'm here. This is a, this is a non-traditional segment here. Um, I'm here with Adam McKay. The Big Short was just nominated for a bunch of Oscars. You were nominated for Best Director, Best Selena Gomez cameo, which I didn't even know that they had that as an Oscar. They started that award four years ago. Yeah, it's the first year they've actually given it out. But yeah. Do you think you're a lock for that? I don't know. There's a couple other Selena Gomez cameos that are pretty tough. She's in Star Wars. Uh, She's in Spotlight. Fingers crossed. That's all I can do. Uh, You are in Washington, which is not the place I think. It's not your natural habitat. Why are you in Washington? You know, it's a movie that we made to have a discussion. And if you want to have a discussion about bank reform and the politics behind bank reform and are banks too big to fail, I think one of the places you come is uh, D.C. So, so far, it's been really satisfying. We've had amazing conversations with people. Did you guys meet with folks at the White House? We did. We met with uh, the economic team. It was really interesting. It was interesting to get a sense of their tone and kind of perspective. I mean, these are the guys who are really in the trenches, who have to deal with the realities of that Congress and, and talk about politics at a high, high level. But then afterwards, we went to Elizabeth Warren's office, and it was like the opposite. It was just like excitement, and we can do this, and... At the same time, very, very smart. Um, so it was great to kind of see those two sides. And then we did our, uh, our sort of Q&A or, or debate at the Brookings Institute. And that was a whole different tone. So it's very interesting to see, depending on where people come from, what their emotional state is about issues like this. I remember one of the most shocking moments for me during the financial crisis was this moment when I think it was Bob Rubin was being interviewed. Bob Rubin, who was at that point, I guess, vice chairman of Goldman Sachs, former secretary of the treasury, and he didn't know what a CDO was. And and here you have a person who would basically run the national economy, doesn't know the financial instrument that's about to destroy the economy. Do you think if, if, that, if that level of ignorance exists uh, about complicated financial transactions at that high level, is there any hope for a movie like yours to actually educate? Can the public be educated? I always say all you need to get is that they made these instruments so complex that no one could penetrate them. And that's a trick. That's an old con that you do. When you really look at what they were doing with these instruments, it's actually quite simple. I mean, they're just bundling mortgages, and then they ran out of good mortgages, so they put crappy ones in. And then when they got really crappy, they put them into another thing called the CDO, which was really crappy, and then people bet on that and bet on that, and that's how the contagion spread. But I think the real story behind it is just like, 
why wasn't anyone watching this? Why was government so completely castrated as far as like dealing with this and helping with this? Those are the questions I find like really intriguing. In what sense is the government a character in the big short? I think that when you really see the government, it's the SEC. I mean, the SEC is what your average person kind of thinks is the watchdog out there. And I know that Fed does regulatory work as well. And I know there's a bunch of other agencies that oversee things. But for most people, they think of the SEC. And to hear that their budget had been flattened and they weren't really investigating much of anything, that was the point where we really wanted to point the finger at the government. And then, of course, you hear the bailout in the end you start seeing a government that's pretty disinterested and they're not really playing an active role. I mean, the people we talk to, they would never go on the record with it, but they openly laugh at the SEC. I mean, it's a complete joke. And I think if most taxpayers knew that, they would say, wait a minute, why aren't we tripling the budget? Why aren't they aggressively looking for this sort of complexities, disguising fraud, why were derivatives mostly a dark market when we're trading trillions of dollars, yet we weren't tracking it. So the movie really kind of shows what happened through the lens of these these characters. But I really want the audience afterwards, when they're angry, when they've learned about it, I think the next natural step is what is our government doing? Because that's the power you have as a person. Do you think of the your char- the characters in your story, the played by Christian Bale or Ryan Gosling or Steve Carell, are they heroes? You know, I don't know if it's the kind of story that really fits into like a black hat, white hat kind of hero structure. What they were doing in the beginning, and I found that I really supported them, was they were looking for the truth. And anytime anyone's looking for the truth, you're excited by that. So, and I think these guys really believed in the market. They really thought that if there was a bad investment, you do the counter investment, and that's how the market balances itself. And there's a moment, especially when you meet the real people, you can really see it in their eyes, where you could tell they just realized the whole system had been captured. So they could have been heroes. They should have been heroes. If the system was working They would have quietly done their job. The banks would have said, who are these guys shorting these products? Oh, wait a minute. We should be careful with these products. And the market would have corrected. But the market wasn't listening. The market didn't care. It was gamed. And so that's kind of the tragedy of the story. These guys were doing their jobs. Like Greg Lippman, too, who's uh, renamed Jared Bennett in the movie. I mean, you know, he's a killer banker, but he was doing his job. He paid attention. And so, yeah, they made some money. But I never, I never got the sense any of them were doing a tap dance after they made their money. I, felt, I got the sense that, you know, when you do something as a career and then you find out that career is totally compromised, that they're all just kind of bummed by it. One of the things that, that has surprised me over the past few years, I've seen a lot of the, the really good money movies. I've seen The Wolf of Wall Street. I saw 99 Homes, Magic Mike I would put in this category. So, But my question is, you're a comedy director. You made a very funny movie about money and Wall Street. It's, a, it's, a, it's an anger-making movie, but it's a very funny movie. A lot of these movies actually have been very funny in a dark way. What is it about, about money that allows that combination? <laughs> All right, let's go to like the rudiments of comedy, which is W.C. Fields wants a shot glass that is 10 feet down the bar. And he is trying to find eight or nine different ways to get that shot glass, which is not his. He's using a cane. He's trying to distract someone. That's all it is. 
These people want this money, and they're going to come up with weird, esoteric names for it. They're going to game the government. They're going to they're put giant signs out in front of their buildings so they look almost like a church when you walk in, and they're going to act like they're so legitimate. It's hilarious, and it's all just because they want that shot glass full of whiskey or they want that piece of cheese. Why do you think that we didn't go burn down Wall Street? Why, wasn't, why did no one go to jail? Why did... Why did everyone get away with it? I don't think anyone understood exactly what happened. I think the Occupy movement had a really exciting moment where they should have sat down and written down 10 demands, 10 really clear demands, higher capital requirements, you know, transaction tax, whatever the demands were. And they didn't do it, even though there was this anger from Occupy. And there were some really smart people involved in that movement that tried to do that. I don't mean to dismiss what happened, but... The voice, the voice for the counter movement, the voice for the reform movement is so young and malformed at this point. And until that spear has a really sharp tip on it, I don't think it's going to happen. I'm convinced the tip of the spear is don't vote for anyone who takes money from banks. Like, let's just everyone, 100 percent of us, stop, stop, stop. And you will see things change very quickly. Is there another story as you look at the American economy or the America that you think would benefit from a big short treatment. And I'll give you my bias, which is that I feel like the way we relate to healthcare, the opacity of healthcare, the difficulty of understanding what you're paying for, why you're paying for it, that there's probably a version of it for that. Oh, I totally agree with you about healthcare. I mean, you know, there's definitely a, a travesty going on in this country, even though, you know, the Obamacare has done a lot of good. I mean, I do have friends who are on it, and it's helped a lot. Um, you know, I, I actually think, and this is probably a boring answer, I just think the destruction of unions, I just think is crazy. I mean, you just see wages have gone down and down. You look at any state that's right to work, your average salary is $5,000 less per person. And somehow through all this PR and the, you know, the Bulwarian anti-union techniques in the 60s, they really convinced Americans to like hate unions, which are us. You know, it's about the only way we get fair wages, and it's the way, you know, they've, they've shown in other countries where they have unions, the workplace is safer, you know, people live longer, communities build more, it actually helps the business, because you have this middle class. Could you do that as a movie? I don't know. I mean, the healthcare one's a good one. I mean, I still think, you know, just runaway consumerism is fascinating. I just think jet skis and hoverboards and video games and just piles and piles of electronics. I'm not sure how we would get into that, but that's fascinating to me too. Like just, you know, Amazon is such a weird company. Like now they're going to use drones to deliver products to you. If anything, I might do that. I might take Amazon and jump 10 years in the future and see what that's going to become. Adam McKay, thanks for coming on the GapFest. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And now word from our other sponsor this week, which is Harry's. You know what I think about every time I'm in a drugstore and looking at razors? How did shaving get to be so incredibly expensive? I used to pay a fortune for store-bought razors until my friends at Harry's sent me some Harry's blades. And as I've talked about on the show before, I'm a bearded guy, but Harry's is my razor of choice for cleaning up my neck, cleaning up the bits of beard I don't want, occasionally taking out my whole, shaving my whole skull. I had a brief moment of panic the other day when all my Harry's blades got moved in our bathroom and I did not know where they were. And I was irritated and sweaty and fortunately discovered them quickly. 
Harry's is special because it's the only company that has both amazing quality and low prices. They have German-engineered five-blade cartridges, which create a close, comfortable shave. There are no cuts or burns, and they'll give you a full refund if you're not happy. They have factory direct prices. They cut out the middleman, and they'll ship shaving supplies right to your door. Over 1 million guys have already made the switch, and thousands more switch every day. So why pay $32 for an 8-pack of blades when you can get them for half the price at harrys.com? The Harry Starter Set is a great deal. For just $15, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. And if you're a GabFest listener, you get this special offer, too. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the promo code GABFEST. So stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now and use the promo code GABFEST. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are holed up in New Hampshire in a hotel room, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? Well, actually, when I'm held up in the um, hotel room in New Hampshire, I might very well be speaking into a microphone because I've started this experiment with my colleagues at Face the Nation, a diary, the Face the Nation diary, we're calling it, which is a um, several times weekly short podcast about whatever's happening in the race, whatever's on my mind, whatever difficulties with travel that I've encountered. Um, it's just a little campaign diary from the road. So I'm my chatter's about myself, which usually it's yeah. always about myself in some surreptitious, hidden but way. But now it's truly but this time about it's yourself. Directly. Bonking well, you right over the head. You know, we should have promoted it for you. I have not yet it's listened like to the diary. It's like listening but I... to John read a slate piece in his whistle-stop voice. It's very charming. Well, no, I see in Twitter people are just all excited whenever there's a new one that drops. You now you, – you, the, the, the multiplication of John Dickerson's work in the last six months is kind of incredible because you have this podcast. You have Whistle Stop. You have your new Face the Nation Diary. You're writing for two different – you're writing for Slate and CBS it seems like. And you're also incidentally the host of Face the Nation and you're hosting debates and I believe you're writing a book. So it's, it's a little bit much. <laughs> Which is to say there's never too much of a good thing. That's what David really meant to say. You haven't, uh, you haven't mentioned my work uh, with mixed media. I'm working now both in oils and uh, a crew. <laughs> I, I work with wonderful people who help me um, put all of that together. So it's really just that. I should note that we don't actually have John here. It's just a holographic representation of John because John actually is doing other things. Anyway, uh, Emily, what is your chatter? My chatter is about a new study in the New England Journal of Medicine about what happened in Texas after Texas took away family planning funding from Planned Parenthood. Texas did this in 2013 after um, it wa Texas wasn't allowed to take away federal Medicaid funding, so they substituted in state funds, and then they excluded Planned Parenthood from the program. And what happened was that the rate of women who were using the best kinds of contraception, long-acting contraception, the IUD, Depo-Provera, dropped by 35%. And the birth rate rose. So first of all, long-acting contraception is like really the key to reducing abortion and also reducing unplanned and unwanted pregnancies, which are associated with lots of bad outcomes for kids. So I just find this whole um, idea so upsetting that a state would essentially take away from women this really important tool for helping them manage their lives and make their lives better. 
And it's weird to think of a rate, a rise in childbirth as like a bad outcome because, you know, having a baby is supposed to be a happy experience. But if people don't get to choose or properly really plan for when they're having their children um, and they end up doing it in a kind of haphazard way, as I was saying before, like that's just not usually the best way to bring a child into the world. So um, I would like to think that the study would make Texas revisit its policies and at least perhaps make other states think twice before um, doing the same thing. And I should say just obligatorily that this government money was not going to Planned Parenthood to pay for abortions because um, that the state and Congress has banned that from happening. It was to pay for contraception and STDs testing and other kinds of health care. Good luck getting Texas to change it. Right. But there are some other states that are like, you know, on the fence that might think. Anyway, what's your chatter? My chatter is uh, it's about such a great TV show I'm watching on Netflix. It's called Occupied. Have you guys heard of the show? No, I'm excited to hear about it from you. It is. It's like Borgen meets Homeland. It is a Norwegian political thriller. I'm not going to give anything away when I tell you the premise. The premise is that Norway has stopped oil and gas production, starving Europe of oil and gas in the near future. Norway is concerned about climate change, stopped its oil and gas production, and Russia occupies Norway to force Norway to start to restart oil and gas production. And it's about the prime minister who's trying to manage this Russian occupation. It's about the Russian ambassador. It's about a reporter. It's about a a, a person who works in intelligence. Um, It's just fantastic. It's 10 episodes for this one season, but you should definitely, definitely watch it if you can. Also, just a reminder, I've gotten so many great suggestions for people who want to do Obscura Day events Please keep them coming to me, David at atlasobscure.com. Obscure days, explorations, adventures, expeditions all around the world. Listeners, you've given me some great tips and some great you've taken, you know, you're volunteering to do some wonderful things. If you have a great idea for something, let me know at David at atlasobscure.com. That's it for the show this week. Our intern is Elle Biscard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is, of course, part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, which was filled, filled with irritation at me this week. And our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, subscribing, commenting, rating really help us. Search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. And we'll talk to you after New Hampshire. We're going to do a special quickie after, right after the New Hampshire primary. So we'll talk to you then, too. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.